Knowledge is the key. CannabisRadio.com is here to keep you in the know on Just Say No. Did you know there are over 100 medical conditions that can benefit from cannabis therapy? Just Say No talks to patients who have used cannabis to treat their medical symptoms and create a better quality of life. Each week, we will tackle a chronic condition by talking to patients, doctors, and researchers with the goal to helping you live, learn, and thrive. Just say yes to Just Say No. Now here is your host, Ryan Hunt from MJWellness.com. Thanks for joining us. I'm Ryan Hunt from MJWellness.com, and welcome to Just Say No. Each week here on Just Say No, we evaluate, investigate, and give a thorough look at all the various diseases we think cannabis therapy can help. Today on our show, we'll be talking with Dr. Mitch Earlywine. Dr. Earlywine is a professor of psychology at the State University of New York at Albany and has been published in over 100 different publications and sits on the board of directors at Normal. Welcome, Dr. Earlywine. Pleasure to be on the show, Ryan. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Very excited. So you spent years as an alcohol researcher. Why do humans like alcohol so much? It turns out alcohol goes back literally millennia, and perhaps by accident somebody was uh, trying to bake some bread or grind some grains and left some water in there. We didn't even understand what yeast was back then, came back, took a drink, may have appreciated the taste, but certainly appreciated the feeling afterwards. And this change in subjective state, uh, which differs across different people, seems to predict subsequent use now, and I'm guessing that's what motivated folks even back then. I imagine. So why why did you originally focus on alcohol? Why did you get into that field of study? Because I'm a pansy, Ryan. I was <laughs> scared. I was afraid to actually get into the marijuana stuff right away. I was pre-tenure. I was at University of Southern California, a real high-powered, research-oriented place. And I thought, I better stick to the less controversial stuff, try to get as many publications out as I can, hope for funding, and then once I get tenure, turn into the radical maniac I am now. <laughs> so what was your early experience with marijuana? When did you change that into the actually studying marijuana? Well, you'll notice with my publications, uh, I got tenure in must have been 98, and then suddenly I started publishing marijuana stuff. And then that first edition of Understanding Marijuana came out in 2002. I happened to get married in there and you know checked with my wife. Would she mind if I went sort of off the deep end in the cannabis activism? And she knew she had you know signed up for better or for worse. And so that's when I just kind of went wild. So you've been researching this for a long time. You're 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 well known in you know the industry. Speaking specifically to addictions, do you think that marijuana is a better alternative than alcohol? Let's say we we go home at night and we're going to reach for a glass or we're going to reach for a bowl. Is it better for us to smoke marijuana? It's funny because I hear a lot of science types really hem and haw about this, but no, it's categorically better to use cannabis than alcohol. There's nothing that can convince There's those modest data that, yeah, if you only have one drink a night, you're going to have these cardioprotective effects, blah, blah, blah. You could take an aspirin a day and it would be exactly the same. Whereas the risk for liver problems, the addictive propensity, the potential for elevated risks for all kinds of cancers, alcohol is markedly worse, especially at high doses, than uh, recreational use of cannabis, especially with adults who are, you know, basically going to smoke a joint a half hour before bed, watch an episode of The Simpsons, laugh and fall asleep. <laughs> right. 
do we get addicted to marijuana? Is it is it a problem? It's curious because uh, there were literally five thousand years of research trying to find marijuana withdrawal. And a researcher who's developed the marijuana withdrawal scale, who I, you know, constantly rib in the literature, lists these symptoms and people really do report them. But there are things like loss of appetite. I mean, are you kidding me? This is the plant notorious <laughs> for increasing appetite. And you say, oh, I'm not smoking pot. Now I've lost my appetite. I mean, that's not withdrawal. And if you talk to an opiate addict, you know, I've got heroin addicts in my family and stuff like that. Like if you said I'm addicted to marijuana, they'd kick you in the crotch. It's just not the same as our stereotype of drug dependence with hard drugs. Well, what do you think about people using marijuana to, you know, get over addictions from, from opiates or alcohol use? Does it work? Dr. Lucas uh, up in Canada and I had a paper about this years ago, and then he did another survey of the dispensaries up there and found a sure lot of people think it works. We haven't yeah. done the randomized clinical trial yet. I've got a ton of effusive case studies emailing me every month or so, and then these self-report surveys saying it really does work. And it's curious because some of them are things that you wouldn't even expect. So I get reports of folks who say, I quit smoking cigarettes thanks to marijuana. How much cannabis is too much? We talk about medical use. We talk about recreational use. For medical use, there's probably a too much as well. You know, Should we be taking it all day long? Should it just be something we do at night? What I would emphasize is more domains of functioning than amounts. I still remember my grandma coming home from the bar saying, it's four beers a night, I'm alcoholic. Like, it's just not <laughs> about a quantity. It's about how's everything else going in your life. So if you've got satisfying relationships, if you're gainfully employed at a job you like, if you're making progress in your social domains, if you feel like you're contributing to your community, that's what we want out of life, you know? If smoking marijuana all day long doesn't interfere with that, I'm hard-pressed to tell you no. I got to admit, you know, for me personally, uh, Midnight Toker may be a better model. The idea that, you know, I'm going to function in the day and try to make the most of my day and then celebrate the day and appreciate that there's another one tomorrow later in, at night, that seems to work for me. I know tons of other folks who seem to like that model as well and get an awful lot done and seem to be plenty happy. So how do we define addiction then? Is, def is addiction defined as something that gets in the way of your life, which I've, I've heard before, and also there are people who think anything you're doing is you're addicted to it and you need, you need treatment. I mean, I grew up in Missouri where, you know, people said any use is abuse and things like that, and I just never really bought that kind of stuff. But the clincher is... If you're developing problems, it's clearly a problem, and splitting hairs about what is addictive, what is dependence, blah, 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 may not be the best use of our time. If you're having a good day, day after day, and not getting into trouble, I think you're fine. If you are running into health problems, then clearly it's time to change the behavior. Do you think people should take breaks from using marijuana, even in medical users, and just kind of reevaluate or reset their tolerances and... and get off of it once in a while? I find that recreational users, if for no other reason than to keep your tolerance down and your bills low, taking <laughs> a month off every year really helps a lot. And it is stunning how much sensitivity returns and really does a great, a great deal for how your, you know, how your marijuana bill is going to be at the end of the month. For medical users, it may have to just be a day-to-day -day thing. If you've got some of these serious chronic pain issues 
or a lot of nausea related to some other treatments that you have, it may not be a possibility to go day after day after day, but to take a day off and see how your appetite is and how your symptoms do can be super informative. And I emphasize that more than anything so they can enjoy their cannabis and make the best use of it, not because I think there's some morally wrong thing about using it every day. Yeah. As far as doctors go, are they more accepting of marijuana these days? Are we hitting a point where we're turning the corner and doctors want to know about it? It's very state-dependent and very age-dependent. So Hmm. when I was in California, I really saw a lot of good progress. When I moved to New York, uh, I'm in upstate, and it was all brand new again. And so I've had to educate folks. And then most of the physicians who are getting trained now seem to be more open-minded about it and making a lot of inroads, whereas some of the guys who trained when I trained or guys who are you know, in their 60s and been MDs for years, they need to get the continuing education and have their minds open to these ideas. Right. Well, I'll tell you what, we need to take a break. But when we come back, we'll talk more with our guest, Dr. Mitch Earlywine, about marijuana. We will be right back once you get to know our sponsors. Dr. Dabber, hurry. Its temperature is shooting past 1,000 degrees Fahrenheit. It's burning up. I'm afraid for this little guy, it's just too late. What caused the problem? Only Dr. Dabber can maintain the perfect temperature for a smooth-tasting, slower burn. This standard vaporizer lost all of its health benefits, sending it up in smoke. So you're telling me that most vapor pens burn so hot they produce smoke, not vapor? Correct. Keep away from those standard vaporizer pens and turn to Dr. Dabber, doctor's order. Less heat, more flavor. Gondrepreneur.com, your guide to the cannabis business world. Gondrepreneur.com is a comprehensive resource for cannabis professionals and entrepreneurs. Download the Gondrepreneur app on your smartphone or tablet to catch up on cannabis industry news, scroll through our daily job listings, and learn about successful cannabis companies, executives, and investors. Gondrepreneur.com, helping Gondrepreneurs grow. From high atop Mount Soldad in San Diego, California, 100 feet above sea level. Good morning. It's good news with cannabis nurse Heather. This plant is amazing. Positive change is happening. We did it. No matter who you are, you can make a positive impact on the world. I would rather be illegally alive than legally dead. And that quote helped to give you strength. Nurse Heather is only on CannabisRadio.com. Good morning, Cannabis Nurse Heather. Just Say No, spelled K-N-O-W, is back with more conversation about curing and healing with cannabis, only on CannabisRadio.com. Welcome back to Just Say No. I'm Ryan Hunt from MJWellness.com. We've been talking to Dr. Mitch Earlywine about addiction and marijuana. I wanted to jump into something that you wrote extensively about in your book was Understanding Marijuana. It's kind of, you know, the way that marijuana affects people and adolescents. And really my question is, you know, does it turn us into apathetic slugs that are uninterested in any other part of our life? It's (laughs) funny because that was, you know, what we all heard in junior high back in the 70s and 80s was that somehow this was going to drain all your ambition, you know, all these outrageous uh, strategies. When you start looking at the data – There's a subset of cannabis users who are clinically depressed, who are trying to self-medicate, and clinical depression has 
a motivation. Clinical depression has some motivational problems inherent with it. When those folks are included in the sample, it ends up looking like marijuana is causing that when really depression is what's causing that. I do know cannabis users, as everyone does, who are not the most motivated people on earth. But when you start looking at things that would often be the indicators of a motivation or any kind of lack of motivation, you can often find longitudinally they weren't particularly motivated way before they even used cannabis. So some of the grades in high school and stuff like that, you can look back when they were in fourth grade, their grades were lower. So it's clearly not oh, I used marijuana, so now I don't want to do anything. It's, I don't really want to do anything, and I'm going to use some marijuana. That makes so much sense now that you say it. You know, it's, it's kind of obvious. If you're lazy, you're going to be lazy, and marijuana is there. What about with sexual drive? Do, do we know if it heightens or decreases sexual drive? I know there's products out there on the market right now that you know you can rub on yourself before you have sex, and it's supposed to give you incredible orgasms, that type of thing. But actually smoking marijuana before you have sex, is there any research or study that it, it heightens sex? It's funny because I mentioned this in my drug class. If your orgasms aren't good enough, something's not right. <laughs> and, and I I think more than anything, cannabis may enhance sexual contact, but it's through a certain mechanism that you can get without cannabis, and that's sensate focus. Mm-hmm. What a surprise. Cannabis helps us focus on sensations in all domains. Why does food taste better? Why is television more riveting? Why are movies so delightful? In part because we pay attention to that and really focus on it, and we're in the moment with it. And if you do that, Uh, during sexual contact with yourself, with as many partners as you want, whatever, what a surprise, it's a better experience. If cannabis is the path to getting there, that's great, but I can reassure folks that simply altering the attention can have a dramatic impact too, and so uh, it's available to anybody whether they use cannabis or not. Cannabis does seem to have that effect according to self-reports we've seen since the 70s and 80s, as you might imagine, it's hard to get funding to do this kind of work in the lab. Yeah, it probably is. Or maybe people also focus on one thing and can't focus on having sex as well. <laughs> you may just be uh, high in your head and you can't get into the sex act too. What do we know about marijuana's effect on driving? You know, as these states become recreational and you know departments kind of scramble to figure out how we're going to test drivers. What effect does it have on driving? So Paul Armentano reviews this literature pretty regularly, and he is, I would say, the nation's expert on this right now. What happens generally is we see laboratory experiments and even some field work where folks get high and actually drive out on the street and find that people do have some modest impairments, but they tend to compensate for them if they're experienced users. So some of the work in the Netherlands shows that In fact, everybody's really good about turning left and turning right and things like that, where we tend to have problems on some of the more automatic functions like staying right down the center of the lane. Everybody's understanding about the stopping distance, so they actually increase their stopping distance and start to stop earlier. They're less likely to tailgate or try to follow another car closely. They're extremely less likely to try to overtake another car or pass other cars. And so they you know, take these steps in order to compensate. So the general risk levels, when you look at the epidemiological data, suggest it's barely statistically significant. In some studies, the cannabis users are actually slightly less risk for accident. And compared to alcohol, it's nothing. 
I want to emphasize, though, that over-the-counter drugs like antihistamines, Benadryl, stuff like that, also produce these driving impairments. And it's why I really encourage all law enforcement officers to rely on roadside sobriety tests rather than some ridiculous measure of what kind of metabolites might be in your blood or urine. If you're super tired or if you're in the first week of taking an anxiolytic you've been prescribed or if you're taking some cold medicine, you could be impaired and it might not show up on a drug test, but it would be pretty obvious on a roadside sobriety test. Yeah, that makes sense. I guess that would be the best way to do it, the roadside sobriety test. I I wonder what is going to happen here in California if we go recreational. should be really interesting. I know there's really no way to test if THC is in your system or if it is, it's in your system for a long, long time, longer than alcohol. Well, the Do folks you... at California Normal have gotten behind this roadside sobriety testing idea, and I think that that's really the path to take and it's going to spread. Do you think people should be drug tested at work for cannabis? No. I mean, the whole idea of drug testing anybody for anything really rubs me the wrong way. If you're yeah. doing your job and it's working out great, then I don't care if you show up high, to tell you the truth. If you're not doing your job, and I don't care if you're on drugs or not, you need to either get better or get a different job. It really doesn't have anything to do with the contents of your body. It has to do with the performance of the tasks. You know, in your book, Understanding Marijuana, I was surprised to read there was a chapter about people being more aggressive on marijuana. And was there a time when we thought people got more aggressive on marijuana? Sad but true. This is kind of reveals the racist origins of cannabis prohibition. So this, you know, tacit assumption that, I mean, I hate to say it, basically folks who are of African descent or uh, Latinos of some sort were going to smoke cannabis and suddenly become super hostile. I mean, anybody who's used cannabis knows this is completely ridiculous. But then we had some laboratory work that couldn't confirm it. Oftentimes, the folks who got the placebo were the ones who were more aggressive because they were mad they weren't high. And then we did see some uh, withdrawal data where somebody was going inpatient for treatment for a drug problem, couldn't have cannabis, and about three days in, they'd be a little more aggressive on one of these uh, sort of aggression-type games you can play in the lab. But if you look at those data, too, it was the first day, then the third day, then the seventh day, and it only showed up on the third day, and I feel like really it's just a statistical fluke. There are a subset of folks who are more aggressive who happen to also report using cannabis, but it's never that cannabis made them aggressive. It's, in fact, with a lot of them, an effort to try to control some of their anger, an anger management approach, if you will, that uh, leads them to use cannabis. Why do you think marijuana gets blamed for all these things? <laughs> the People's lack of engagement in life? and It's funny because it started with the repeal of alcohol prohibition. Harry Anslinger, the first head of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, the sort of drug czar number one, had essentially been behind alcohol prohibition when it got repealed. He was going to be out of a job. All his law enforcement friends were going to be at risk for losing their jobs. They needed to come up with an evil and they needed to come up with it quickly. There were minorities who were using this plant. Caucasians and a lot of other voters really didn't know much about it. If you read how it you know, got through Congress, you can see people don't know what they're talking about, and it just sort of glided through like a whole lot of bills that, that turn out that way. Once that came out, though, we were all misinformed, 
And we were, you know, just doing what we were told, like good little students in our junior high. So the teacher says marijuana does X, and we get that right on a test, and we're reinforced for thinking it. And as the data have been coming in to counter that, old habits die hard. It's been really, really rough for, you know, my work for other folks to try to disprove some of these. But finally, uh, the truth is winning out, and I'm, I'm grateful to see how attitudes are changing over the years. I'll tell you what, we need to take a break, but when we come back, we'll continue talking to Dr. Mitch Earlywine. We will be right back once you get to know our sponsors. Your connection to quality cannabis insurance services is spelled K-A-E-R-C-H-E-R. That's Karcher Insurance. We have worked with ventures like cannabis for over 60 years. We're proud to represent over 50 companies with tailor-made cannabis plans for owners just like you to insure your product, your plants, and your pursuits. K-A-E-R-C-H-E-R spells out their full-service insurance services, ranging from commercial to bonds, to personal, from life to health, and more. Contact the team at CarcherInsurance.com and let our experience work for you. That's K-A-E-R-C-H-E-R Insurance.com. Contact Karen and the team at Karcher Insurance at 1-844-421-3560. That's 844-421-3560. MJWellness.com, the largest medical marijuana community in the world. Connect with thousands of patients, doctors, industry leaders, and businesses through shared personal experiences along our worldwide network. Discover new therapies and benefits with content tailored to you. Come grow your network on mjwellness.com. You're not alone. Your wellness matters. Learn, live, and thrive. Check out mjwellness.com today. Educator, author, and advocate, Dr. Mitch Earlywine is here to tackle the burning issues. And I'm here to clear up the myths about cannabis and burn them away with science. CannabisRadio.com presents a no-holds-barred platform that seeks to redefine and revolutionize the entire scope of the cannabis culture while opening the door for more to join the cannabis crusade. Dr. Kevin Hill. You can't ignore the fact that, like alcohol, most people who use don't have a problem, so I think that you need to think about policy in that way while educating people properly about marijuana. I think that's the way to go. Burning Issues, only on CannabisRadio.com. Just Say No, spelled K-N-O-W, is back with more conversation about curing and healing with cannabis, only on CannabisRadio.com. Welcome back. I'm Ryan Hunt from MJWellness.com, and we've been talking to Dr. Mitch Earlywine about how marijuana affects motivation. I wanted to get into maybe some conditions with you too. Pain, specifically, how does THC compare with other painkillers, maybe like codeine or Tylenol or maybe some heavier things, some opiates so for thing- controlling pain? Yeah. The thing that I always want to emphasize is that cannabis's impact on pain is an inverted U, as they say. There's a, a peak in the middle dosage where it's most effective. Too little doesn't do the job, but too much actually increases pain sensitivity as well. And so that's a really ideographic response. Each patient's going to be different as far as that concerned. With that in mind, cannabis is just as good as 
pretty much uh, any of the opiates except the really dangerous fentanyl-related type ones. And the opportunity there to use them in tandem with the opiates so that you don't develop tolerance and you don't have all the weird side effects that nobody ever talks about. Opiates are super constipating. We're not supposed to talk about that because we're in a culture where that's just not accepted. But, I mean, if you're going to pick up Vicodin, you better pick up a bag of prunes. And the clincher is cannabis doesn't have that impact. If you can use cannabis to keep your opiate consumption lower, you're not going to have to suffer for that. And what a surprise, it goes really, really well. Specific strains are better for pain than others. So if you have one that's not working, by all means, try something new. But it doesn't have to be a cognitively impairing dose either. And so the opiates may have the edge as far as decreases in cognitive impairment, but you don't need an impairing dose of cannabis in order to improve range of motion and in order to decrease complaints about pain. I have a question about headaches. You know, whenever I've smoked marijuana, when I had a headache, it's made it 10 times worse. (laughs) But do we have any research that cannabis or THC can help stop the onset of a migraine? So Ethan Russo has published a really great review paper on this. And in fact, it is there, but you have to understand what you're doing. So tension headaches, uh, like the ones you may be reporting, Ryan, it's very strain-specific and very dose-specific. But for migraines, a lot of folks will get these initial flashes or some other minor symptom that they know is a good predictor. And when you get that, run for the vaporizer right away. Rather than waiting for a full-blown migraine, which is much harder for the intervention, if you can hit the cannabis early in the process, it doesn't even have to be a very large dose, you'll be delighted to know you can, you can intervene and really cut it off at the pass. One thing we've never talked about on this show is asthma. And I don't understand how THC or cannabis helps with asthma. Does it help with the attacks? Is asthma an infl- inflammation that it's helping What's happening really is the bronchial passages are spasming. So the the inside of your lungs are not working the way they ought to work. It seems ironic that smoking something would help, but in fact, edibles could also help this. This is a use that actually goes back to 2737 BC with the Chinese alleged mythical Emperor Shenang. And we've known this for a long, long time. Again, it's one of those situations where if you feel an impending attack coming on, getting the cannabis in your system ahead of time is a bigger advantage and it really has to do with the vascular system around the lungs rather than any smoke or or anything like that. It's a wild phenomenon and one that's really, really, I think, open for a lot more investigation. You know, we talk a lot about diseases on this show and it seems like most diseases are caused by inflammation, some type of inflammation. And is that really the best use of cannabis is to control inflammation like gut diseases and, you know, or talking outside of things like PTSD, but actual chronic conditions of the body? I feel like there are a lot of good data on that. So in part because the gut is lined with those CB2 receptors at such an impressive rate, I feel like that may be part of why cannabis can be so good for all those GI-related conditions. And it's intriguing because even aging may be related to inflammation. A whole lot of the, you know, Alzheimer's, dementia, and things like that seem to be related to inflammation. And I think this is not the only plant that does that, and that's why I'm not so surprised. Turmeric seems to work this way. The plant Melissa, what do they call it, lemon balm, 
seems to work this way. So we shouldn't be too stunned to learn that, in fact, this works that way as well. I wanted to get a few questions in. Just because you've been around for so long and you've been researching, you've been part of normal, what do you think about California going recreational? What do you think about recreational use in general? I'd be delighted to see a tax and regulated market for recreational use in California. I think some of the clinchers in the arguments we've had about whether medicinal use is legit or not could be put aside. I find those kind of offensive and hurtful. And then people who are completely responsible with their recreational use ought to be able to get a legal source in order to not get exposure to some of the underground market drugs that we know have negative consequences that are markedly worse. And it really does generate interesting tax revenue for the states, as we're seeing in those states that are already using a legal market. So I'm, I'm eager to see California go that direction. Yeah, I think we all are out here. Well, I'll tell you what, we are out of time. I want to thank you for joining us on this edition of Just Say No. Thank you, Dr. Mitch Earlywine. It was a very good show. I would thank our producers for finding these great guests and making our show possible. You can download episodes of our program by going to CannabisRadio.com or subscribing to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or iHeartRadio. Also, you can follow the show on Facebook and Google+. For more information about our guests and to read more about patients using marijuana to control their symptoms and to talk to me, go to MJWellness.com. You can find Dr. Mitch Earlywine at Cannabis Radio. He has a show as well called Burning Issues, and there are new episodes every Monday. You can also pick up his book, Understanding Marijuana, on Amazon, as well as other books that he's written on Amazon. Join us next week when we will tackle more conditions that can be managed using marijuana therapy. expressed on this CannabisRadio.com program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of CannabisRadio.com. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without proper consent of CannabisRadio.com is prohibited.